Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning cup of murder sometimes a hero comes from an unlikely location on november 9th 2003 a man made a phone call that would put a serial killer behind bars a hero who stopped a victim count at seven before it could escalate any further so if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder Talking about the early life of Sipo Dube is difficult considering there isn't even really a record of his birth. We do know that he grew up in the Mlumeo Valley in Ladysmith, an area in South Africa, and was described as, quote, troublesome as early as the age of seven when he reportedly stole a neighbor's portable radio. When asked about the theft, the young boy allegedly told the adults that they were full of shit and they should mind their own business. He was a stubborn boy who started stealing from his neighbors more frequently once he reached his teen years. And when he left school at the age of just 16, his teachers, who had long given up on Sipo, said that they knew that he would likely end up in prison. Despite dropping out and rarely attending school before then, Sipo was a smart young man who taught himself to read in several languages and was fluent in English. After years of theft, acts of violence, and striking fear in the hearts of his fellow neighbors, 
Things for Sipo seemed to escalate even further after a bus accident left him in a hospital bed for four months. In 1997, he received an 18-month sentence for attempted theft. In 1999, he was given three months for housebreaking. And in 2000, Sipo fled the Ladysmith area altogether after he raped a young girl. This was the last time anyone in their community saw Sipo Dubey in person. The next time they heard his name and saw his face was three years later when he was arrested for a string of crimes he committed that, in the end cost seven strangers their lives. Operating in the KwaZulu-Natal and Johannesburg areas, Sipo would approach his victims in public areas and then, luring them with the promise of toys, pretending to be a police officer, and even saying that he was a handyman who could fix appliances for them, they would head under a bridge or to a mine dump where the kindly man would assault, rape, and then murder the unsuspecting individual. When it came to the children that he abducted, Sipo would begin to pray, and if the prayer was a, quote, good one, he would let them go. But if it was a, quote, bad one, he took it as a sign and killed the child. The first to fall victim to this dangerous man was Rashunthi Harriduth Singh, just 38 years old, who told her mother on March 23, 2001, that she was going to go to the bank and would be returning home a little later than usual. The mother of two, and a widow, was found at a monument near the residential area in Ladysmith by a patrolling officer who later testified that she had been robbed and her face was horribly mutilated. She had not, however, been raped. After taking this woman's life, Sipo made that move to Johannesburg in late 2002 and began making his living by collecting cardboard and scrap metal. Then, on April 13, 2003, 14-year-old Thabo was reported missing by his father, Moses Delangolo. Just 12 days later, discarded just a few kilometers from their home, Thabo's body was found, but for reasons unknown, the family would not be told the boy was murdered until August of 2005. Identifying the boy from police photographs, Thabo's mother said that her heart broke when she saw that both of the boy's arms were missing. His parents claimed that Thabo left the day to pick up something from the shop for his mother. Later on, after he failed to return, she received a call from a man who identified himself only as Sipo, saying that she needed to tell her husband that he needed to forget all about his son. The man called again and said he killed Thabo and told the family where they could find his body. On August 6, 2003, 14-year-old Namnikelo Jamba was stabbed in the neck and armpit and left abandoned at the bottom of a hill. When police arrived, Sipo Dube told the men how the girl ran down the slope and collapsed after she was raped. Leading them straight to the body, shoes still covered in blood, for one reason or another, Sipo was never considered a suspect, nor was he questioned. Had they done so, police might have avoided the deaths of a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 12-year-old, and an 11-year-old. Found left on her body, smeared onto her trousers, was semen from her attacker. On September 18, 2003, 10-year-old Lucanio Puwane and her 15-year-old friend were on their way home from school when they stopped to pick some fruit from a tree and were approached by a man pushing a trolley filled with cardboard boxes. Asking for their help and promising them some money in return, 
Sipo could not convince the friend, but Lucanio agreed and walked away with the stranger. His body was found the following day, naked on the side of the road. According to the motorist who happened upon the scene, two men were already at the body trying to help the boy who had open wounds all around his face and was at the time still alive and calling out for his friend. Calling an ambulance that never arrived, the men took the boy to the hospital where he passed away the next day. The state's pathologist later testified in court that the injuries found on the young boy were the worst she had ever seen. On September 24, 2003, nine-year-old Anel Mumbuku and his 12-year-old cousin, Siabanga Mumbuku, were led away from safety with the promise of a Rambo-like action figure that, when passing by the cellar earlier in the day, Anel's mother told him that she could not afford. Thinking the salesman was gone for that afternoon, she sent the cousins back into town to go pick up something from her sister's nearby home. When they failed to come back, Anel's mother went looking for them and saw them in the company of that salesman, Sipo Dube. She ordered the men to stay away from the boys and even threatened to call the police. But when she came back out of her home five minutes later, all three were nowhere to be found. Sipo would later confess to leaving the boys at a dam, but later said he dumped their bodies in the veld. He then changed his story for a third time and said he had no clue where they were. For two months, the family searched for the young boys until finally their bodies were found in a nearby dam not far away from home. The shock of the murders ended up causing both the heart attacks and deaths of Sophie Mumbuku's father and aunt. On November 8, 2003, Sipo took the life of his last victim. Luring away 11-year-old Tina Bernardes, her bludgeoned body was later found hidden underneath a bush on a mine dump off of the M2 highway. According to her aunt, who was selling clothing on Jewel Street, a man approached them that afternoon asking to buy two cell phones. She asked Tina and her 12-year-old cousin to accompany the man and get the phones for him but only the cousin returned. Saying Tina was, quote, gone, the cousin said that she decided halfway to the destination that Sipo was not trustworthy after smelling alcohol on him and decided to hang back. Tina continued the journey. After the disappearance, a massive search began for not just Tina, but the man who was last seen with her on that walk. Passing out hundreds of flyers with her photo, the entire community made it their mission to find Tina, and during the search, they spoke to a houseless man named Alfred Nyanga, who recalled seeing a man walking with a young girl towards the highway. A man that he recognized from around the scrapyard and given some money and asking him to call if he ever saw Sipo Dube again, the very next day, Alfred called to say that he was back at the scrapyard. Pointing the man out, Sipo was taken to Tina's aunt, who immediately recognized him as the man she sent off with her niece that day. And he was officially arrested in connection to the murder on November 9th, 2003. Alfred, a hero, was never really seen or heard from again. He, however, should be recognized for the phone call that put a dangerous man behind bars. Though he claimed to be 26 years old at the time of his arrest, Sipo appeared older according to the sources. Though the community breathed a sigh of relief after his capture, the sense of safety was short-lived, and on January 12, 2004, Sipo managed to escape the magistrate's office and walk out of the building after responding to a different prisoner's name. 
He was later rearrested under a false name for attempted theft of a vehicle and stabbing the car's owner and was taken into custody on January 16th after getting tired during a foot chase and sitting down on the street. Unaware that this man was a serial killer, Sipo was questioned after his arrest and confessed in great detail to the many rapes and murders that he committed over the years. He claimed his first sexual encounter was when he was still in school in 1993, and when asked if he had sex with men, he said that he was forced to have sex with a man who insisted that he was gay. He placed his penis between Sipo's thighs, an action that the serial killer and rapist would do to most of his male victims. When asked about the children that he assaulted, he said that they were God's children, that he liked the, quote, company of both boys and girls, and preferred children between the ages of 6 and 12. With no question that this man was a criminal, Sipo was charged and taken to court where he displayed a rage and violence that marked him as one of the country's worst serial killers. Verbally attacking the media and having to be stopped from a physical attack by a handful of officers, Sipo was returned the favor and taunted by family members of his victims and told to let the press take his photo because, quote, the world needs to see the face of a serial killer. Telling him to rot in hell and that the blood of their children would haunt him until his death, he started screaming abuses of his own, pulled out a microphone from the dock, and threw it towards the gallery. As things continued to escalate, the officers had to remove Sipo and take him to the basement cells. He refused to come out and held up proceedings for three and a half hours until the judge ordered him to be forced out. Threatening to take his own life, while the judge asked why he was refusing to attend his own proceedings and telling him the consequences if he continued, Sipo managed to pick up a newspaper, shove it into his tracksuit, and set it ablaze with a hidden cigarette lighter. Three officers jumped onto the dock and put out the fire, and the judge had to adjourn for the rest of the day. While they forced him to strip to make sure he wasn't hiding anything else that could harm him, Sipo screamed out, Kill me, kill me. Choke me like you did. Choke me. While he continued to be an issue in court, a forensic psychologist for the police told the courts that Sipo Dube was a, quote, serial sexual murderer and pedophile who could not, in their opinion, be rehabilitated. They also said that his motive for the crimes was not material gain as suspected, but that he was a power control murderer who used his intelligence to gain his victim's trust. In the end, on August 23, 2006, Sipo Dube was given 10 life sentences for seven murders and three rapes, as well as an additional 114 years for a handful of other crimes. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on November 10th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.